Thank you, choir. Randy, looking forward next Sunday to our whole choir being together in one service. Uh, It'll be a great, great time in the Lord, and we look forward to that. God is good. All the time. time. It's so good to worship with you. Um, Pray you had a great uh, New Year's Day. It's been a, a time for me of just pondering and thinking, and I read Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I wondered at that. I wondered what um, a human being fully alive looks like. Who is fully alive? And then I remembered in the Gospel of John that John said, we beheld his glory, the glory as the one and only from the Father who was full of grace and truth. I want to show you one life that was fully alive in hopes that Christ, our example, will help us in this new year to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. We started last week just a little uh, mini-series looking at the the life of Jesus as we thought about Epiphany, Christ being revealed to the world. And we saw last week uh, his parents dedicating him in the temple and Simeon, a spiritual man, Today, I want to think with you about about Christ as a child and the way that he grew in grace in a balanced way across his life. And then next week, we'll return to our series in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll think about speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's stand together to read God's word today. Luke 2, verse 39, growing in grace. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom, and after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Thank you. You may be seated. So how did Jesus do it? How did he grow for a lifetime? How did he grow? The scripture tells us he grew in four ways. He, he grew spiritually, he grew physically, he grew intellectually, and he grew relationally or socially, we might say. 
I've looked at this passage before and seen it in that light, but it was this week that it dawned on me that Jesus grew by grace. He grew in grace. It was the grace of God activated in his life that empowered him to grow. So we have this beautiful story of Jesus' parents after they dedicate him and they go back to their town of Nazareth that in verse 40 there's this summary of his growth and it says the grace of God was upon him. So when they take him up to the temple as was their custom, um, the law prescribed that you should go three times a year. But they, many poor families were only able to go one time a year. And we know every Passover, Jesus' parents took him up to the temple. And while they were there, Jesus stays behind. This is the year before he becomes a son of the law. And he is there and he inhabits that experience. And his parents are uh, distressed. And while they're distressed, the leaders, the intelligentsia, the spiritual leaders of Israel are very impressed with Jesus and with his knowledge. And when his mother confronts him and says, why would you do this to us? Jesus reveals a truth. In fact, it's unparalleled in the religions of the world that one would see God as his own father. And Jesus says, I had to be, I had no choice. It was a a moral necessity for me to be in my father's house. And in that moment, he reveals something to us about his understanding of God. And this, more than anything, empowered Jesus as he grew. At every age and stage of Jesus' life, he knew one thing for sure, that his father loved him. His father loved him with an undying love so that his father would say at his baptism, at his transfiguration, his father would show up and speak up and say, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And even in those words, as he blessed his son, his son was empowered. Jesus was empowered to bless the world so that he grew in favor with people as well. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but he was God. He was Jesus. We, we look at his life. How can he be our example when we are so far from him? But I want you to, to see Jesus' perfect humanity, that he was completely human as well as God. And he grew appropriately, perfectly at every age and stage of his life. And he grew in the love of his father so that I don't believe as a tiny, tiny infant that he comprehended completely. But by the time he was 12, as he enters into that temple, he realizes he's at home. This is is his father's house and he has to be about his father's business. And as he grows in that, he becomes all that God intended for him to be. And I wonder if you and I have come to understand how much the heavenly father loves us. I mean, we know God as creator. We know God as the one who made the world. We acknowledge him. But do we understand that God could not love us more than he does? Do you really believe that God loves you just as much as he loved his own son, Jesus Christ? Empowered by that love, we become the people that God intends for us to be. It was Bernard of Clairvaux, that, that 13th century monk who said there are four stages of love in the human life. The first stage kind of comes naturally to us. It's when you you love self for self's sake. Now, some of us have that one down, don't we? We 
We love ourselves and we love ourselves for our own selves sake. We make sure that we take care of number one. But there's a love beyond that, Bernard of Clairvaux said, where you, you love God for self's sake. Now that you've not arrived when you get there, but you know what I mean. It's sort of that quid pro quo kind of relationship with God. Hey God, I'm going to love you and you're going to do for me what I want you to do. It's a sort of Santa Claus picture of God. I'll sit in your lap and uh, I'll tell you what I want and you give me what I want. And as long as you give me what I want, God, we're in we're really doing good. And it's a sort of bargaining kind of relationship with God. It's not a mature understanding of God, but it's better than just loving self for self's sake, we can agree. Loving God for self's sake. But then we come to that place, he says, or at least we ought to, where we love God for God's sake. We just love God because he's God. Are you there? Do you love God just because he's God? That's a great place to be. But But even that is not the final type of love. In fact, he goes on to say, Bernard of Clairvaux says, there's a love beyond that. And it's been hard for me to comprehend this. Maybe you as well. But he says, even beyond loving God for God's sake is loving self for God's sake. That is, we come to understand how much God loves us. And we love ourselves for his sake. And that empowers us to grow in God's unmerited Favor. I could wish that for us today, that you and I would come to understand how much God loves us. Because if we did, we could grow spiritually as Jesus did. You see it there in verse 40 where it says, the grace of God was upon him. That same word grace is there in verse 52 where it says he grew in favor with God. Same word, grace. He grew in grace. God's grace was upon him. God's favor was upon his life. And Jesus grew in his knowledge of his father. I don't believe, by the way, that Jesus as a baby already understood completely God's love for him. I love Michael Card. I love his songs. But in his Christmas song, he has that little phrase where he says, the baby Jesus lying in the manger looks up and in the star a cross he saw through the first of many tears. The baby Jesus sees the cross and the star and begins to weep because, you know, Jesus didn't understand the cross as a baby. He was, he was a perfect baby, but he wasn't a perfect adult as a baby. He grew, he progressed through the ages and stages of his life. And so nobody ever grew better or more perfectly than Jesus. But as a baby, he doesn't understand. And, and then as he gets into the temple, he recognizes the presence of his father. And there is, there is growth in that. And he grows in that understanding. I read this week a, a writer who told about his eight-year-old son asking him as he was reading a book, Daddy, what does ponder mean? And the father, seizing on the moment, teachable moment, says to his son, well, you know, to ponder is to wonder, it's to imagine, it's to think. Um, and he said, well, explain it to, to me more, Daddy. And, and he said, well, it's like if you ponder the meaning of life. Now he knows he's in trouble because he's now talked about a great mystery and now he's going to have to explain what the meaning of life is and he really can't explain that. He's going to have to say, well, there's some things we don't understand. So he thinks, we're going to get in a loop here. But before he can even get there, his son says, I already know the meaning of life. And he looks at his eight-year-old and says, Really? What is the meaning of life? And the little boy says, to love God. Well, Jesus understood that. He understood what it was to love God. And he grew in that love of his father. And it established his steps. And I I was thinking this week as I was reading in that book that I introduced to you last week, the devotional book that I'm working through, uh, Trevor Hudson, who led a staff retreat for uh, our staff some, some years ago. And in that book, he He says in the first chapter, I'm just reading a couple pages a day and just working through it and praying. So one chapter a week, I'm not trying to finish the the book in a month. I'm doing it over 16 weeks. But in there, he asked the question, 
How do you see God? Because the way you see God will determine the way you live your life. And so if you see God as loving, then you will inhabit and live in that love. But if you see God as harsh and judgmental, a recent survey um, asked the, the question, um, do you think God was active, is active in the world? Do you think God judges sin? They asked people those two questions. And based on that, they came with four different categories of the way Americans envision God. A, B, C, D. God is authoritarian. That is, he's active in the world and he judges sin. 31% believe that. Um, 24% believe God is a benevolent God, that he's active in the world, but he doesn't judge sin. Uh, Another group saw God as critical, just 16%. Interestingly, the smallest percentage saw God as critical. That is, uh, he's not involved in the world, but he will strike you with lightning if you mess up. He's going to judge your sin. The fourth, a distant God. He's not active in the world, and he doesn't really care about your sin. These are the categories. When you look at this, I wonder, where would you see your understanding of God. It occurred to me this week as I read Trevor Hudson that we can no more change the fact that God loves us than we can stop the sun from shining. We don't have any control over it. He loves us. What does Romans chapter 8 say? Nothing in all creation. Can I ask you, are you part of God's creation? Of course we are. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That means when I'm at my worst moment, when you're at your worst moment, even then we can't change the fact that God loves us. I'm not saying God loves our sin. I'm saying God loves us. And we can't change that any more than we can stop the sun from shining. I went to a football game this week. I mean, I watched a bunch just like you did perhaps, but I went to a football game and you know, I almost needed a canoe to get into Reliance Stadium. I mean, it was just, you know, but I had great seats. And it was a great, well, it wasn't that great of a game. I showed up, but my team didn't show up. But the worst part about it was the weather, you know, and just the clouds and all that. But it occurred to me when I read that this week that even on that day when it was just dark in the daytime because of the clouds and the rain, just beyond those clouds, the sun was shining. And there are days in our lives when, I mean, it is pouring. But even then, God loves us. More than we can imagine, more than we can know, in an unchangeable way, our loving God is a Father who loves us. And I pray that for you, because that was sort of the revelation for me in that first week of this new year. For me, as I was working through that devotional book, was, how do I see God? I need to see Him as a Father who loves me. And to understand that changes everything. Then I'm, I'm free to grow, spiritually, yes, to grow grow physically and you say well we ought to be some of us ought to be beyond growing physically I understand that but but I look at Jesus life and it says he grew strong in verse 40 and in verse 52 it says he grew in stature we don't have any control over our growth in stature we don't have any control I saw an interesting blog this week and they were talking about how tall Jesus was how tall do you envision Jesus see for me Jesus was at least six foot right I mean just thinking that except almost nobody back in those days was six foot so he would have been sort of a giant if he were six foot. One of the guys in the blog said, how tall was Jesus? And he said, tall enough. <laughs> he was tall enough to do whatever he needed to do. Amen to that. Jesus was, but the point is Jesus grew in stature appropriately, but he grew in strength. Imagine as a carpenter's son, he had physical strength. I mean, working in a carpenter's shop. I imagine after he worried his parents, he spent a lot of time in the carpenter's shop when he got back home. Uh, go out there and work. Well, um, he walked everywhere he went. So Jesus had good physical health. And the only thing I want to say about this to you is we ought to be good stewards of our health. 
without making an idol of it. And I know that's kind of a slippery slope. On the one hand, we say, well, why even pay any attention to physical health at all? But the Scripture says uh, physical exercise profits a little bit. There's some good in physical exercise. Why? Because it maximizes our ability. I say to our, our sons and our daughter, you know, this body is the only body that God has to use to do his work through us in this world. So we don't want to compromise our health. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You want to be as healthy as you possibly can be. We can't control all those factors, can we? But as much as we can, we ought to, we ought to eat right and we ought to exercise. I mean, I believe in those kinds of things that we should do that. The danger, I think, is when it becomes an idol to us. When, um, as many people have done, um, by, by using shortcuts, and uh, our athletes are sort of notorious for this, have compromised their long-term health for short-term gain. And I don't see God uh, being in that either. I think we have to, you know, there, there's probably not a shortcut to being uh, in good health. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of commercials that say, well, if you do this, you'll take away uh, this particular problem. But the truth is, it's just, it's just discipline. And I believe Jesus lived a perfectly disciplined kind of life. And there are disciplines of godliness in our lives. And one of those is to take care of our health. So can I just challenge you to set some goals in that area, attainable, realistic kinds of goals, and, and, and follow through with that and do that. Without making that an idol, do that this year. And then the, the third area of growth I see in Jesus' life is intellectual. That Jesus grew. In verse 40 it says he was filled with wisdom. But then we understand by the time he's 12 years old, he's asking questions. Not just, um, you know, sort of, Um, questions because he already knows the answer so he can impress people. But I think Jesus is listening and he's learning. That's the way that we grow in wisdom. And God wants us to grow for a lifetime, to be lifelong learners, never to stop growing in knowledge. I believe Jesus was, as Dallas Willard said, the smartest man who ever lived. But he wasn't the smartest man who ever lived when he was three years old. He grew in that over a lifetime. And he was in that unusual position of being a teenager who actually was smarter than his parents by this time. Notice in the story, they don't understand that he's there. They don't understand all this. Even though they know about the virgin birth, even though they know about all the promises, they're still growing and understanding what it means. And they treasure in their hearts this awareness and this awakening to the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. But Jesus is sort of growing for a lifetime. Uh, those of us who have teenagers understand uh, the, the challenges of that. And uh, um, I, love, I love salt grass, um, because, not, not just the food, but there's this little sign in there that says to the teenagers, teenagers, are you tired of being harassed by your parents? Act now. Move out. Get a job. Pay your own bills while you still know everything. <laughs> well, we shouldn't be too hard on Jesus' parents uh, here for not knowing They're not the only ones who've left their kids at church. We left Chase one time. Melanie thought I had him. I thought she had him. We left him when he was like, I don't know, like 14 months old. We left him at the church in Cedar Park and had to go back. Our nursery worker stayed an extra 30 minutes for me. I got home and Melanie said, where's Chase? I I don't know. Where's Chase? Yeah, he's at the church. So back in the car to go back and get him. And after we came here, we we forgot Graham and Chase one day. Larry uh, Larry Bertrand's son, Brad, had to bring him home one day, um, bring them home one day. We haven't forgotten Casey yet. So, you know, one out of three. But I was late picking her up from basketball practice this week, and that was not good. I'll just say that. So I, they're just, um, they forget him there, but he knows exactly where he is. He knows what he's doing, and there's great wisdom, and Jesus grows in this wisdom. So it says, even after, he's full of wisdom in verse 40, but it says in verse 52, he grew in wisdom, as if to say, to us at least, we've never arrived. We're not complete yet. We have more learning to do. And so 
Can I just challenge you this year to read through the scriptures again? This has been a consistent challenge. Over This is my 13th year of being your pastor. And every year I've said, read the Bible through with me this year and see what God says. The plan this year has you read in the New Testament. Matthew 1 and 2 yesterday, Romans 1 and 2 today. Because I thought October was too late to wait to start reading the New Testament. I just, I can't wait till October to start reading the New Testament. And so it's sort of uh, spread out. My son Chase and I are doing that together this year, reading through the Bible together. I'd encourage you to do that, to do it with somebody. I remember Kathleen Norris's book, Amazing Grace, where she tells about a man named Arlo that she met. He was on his deathbed. He was an older man, kind of a John Wayne kind of guy, dying of terminal cancer. And he told her an amazing story about when he was newly married, that his grandfather, who was a very dynamic Christian, gave him and his wife a Bible for their wedding, engraved their names on it in gold, and uh, gave them the, the Bible. And uh, every year at Christmas time, this grandfather would ask them, so how do you like that Bible I gave to you? And they had sent him a thank you note already. I mean, you know, you hate people who give gifts and keep asking about them, right? But, you know, um, years passed, and every year he would say, oh, yeah, thank you for the Bible. Thank you. And he got to where even before his grandfather asked, he'd say, thank you for the Bible. You know, and just, then one day he started thinking about that, and he went and he actually opened up the box. And he found at the beginning of every book of the Bible, all 66, there was a $20 bill. That was a lot of money back then. Nearly $1,300 was there, and he would never have known. Did you get a Bible for Christmas? I'm just saying, you might want to open it this year and, and read it. There may, there may not, it may not be money in there, but there might be something much better than that in there. The wisdom of God is revealed to us as we come to study the life of Jesus Christ, and they don't know. So Jesus says, didn't you know? And I think the more we know, the more we want to be about our Father's business, the more we want to be in our Father's presence in our Father's house. And the more we read, the more we know. Look at the love the Father. See, if you didn't ever get to First John, you wouldn't know this. Look at the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, growing spiritually and physically and intellectually. I, I want you to read books this year. Maybe a good challenge this year is to say, I'm going to read one more book than I read last year. And for some of us, that would be just reading one book this year. And that's okay. Just read a book or read two or, or three. I, I found an old... Uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man book by Kent Hughes and a commitment I made in 1993 when I read that book for the first time. I just wrote in the margin, one book every 10 days. 36 books this year I want to read. I'm reading three or four books right now. Some of you have given me books and I love, I love to read. Why? Because I want to grow. I want to grow in this way. And the final area in which we see Jesus growing is relationally. In his relationships with people, It says Jesus grew in favor with people. Now look, when you know how much God loves you, then you don't spend the rest of your life trying to get people to love you. Why? Because you're already secure in His love. But here's the amazing thing. The more we grow in His love, the less obnoxious we are to other people. The more we grow in His love, the more winsome we are. So that we're not those people who uh, perturb other people, but we become loving and people love us and we love people. And look, the two commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus did that. But it also says love your neighbor as yourself. And some of us can't love our neighbors because we can't love ourselves. And we can't love ourselves because we can't really believe that God could love somebody like us. But if we could understand how much he loves us, then we could love ourselves and then we could love our neighbors as Jesus looked, there was nobody who was ever born more self-sufficient than Jesus Christ. You think he had to have people? No, I mean, he's, he's God. 
He's self-sufficient. And yet, our God is the God who loves us, who loves people, who not only created us, but redeemed us. And Jesus loved people. So what does he do? He calls 12 disciples. And he knows one of them is going to betray him. And he still calls him. And invites him to walk with him for three years. And pours love into his life. And when the disciples say to the parents of the children, Jesus is too busy, Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. He had time for people. And we are not really growing spiritually if we're not growing in our love for people. John says, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen if you don't love the people whom you see every day? And so we need to learn to love people. I understand sometimes it's hard to love people. Some people are hard to love, right? There's a beautiful book I I received over the Christmas season uh, called Unbroken. Anybody read that book? Anybody reading that book? By Lauren Hildebrand. Amazing, amazing book. A new friend in the church uh, uh, told me about it at a Christmas party. I'm walking by him up there during the uh, sounds of Christmas. I'm just trying to be, you know, inconspicuous. That doesn't work so well. But I'm trying to be walking over to Melanie and Casey uh, in the service. And I walked right by him and he just hands me the book. And I put it in my, in my stack of books that I'm going to start reading. And I start reading it. And a friend of mine says to me, is it even a Christian book? I said, yeah, I don't even know. Well, let me... It's an amazing book about Louis Zamperini, who um, you know, grew up sort of rough life, an immigrant, um, lots of challenges in his life. He stole a lot, so he had to learn to run fast to get away from the police. And he learned to run so well that he ended up being in the Olympics in 1936. True story. He was a teenager running the 5,000 meters in the Olympics for the United States in Berlin. You know, Hitler and all of that, he was there. And this uh, man, after the Olympics... Um, goes into the military and fights in the war and, and uh, he's shipwrecked in the Pacific and 47 days on a raft. It's an interesting book. 47 days on a raft and finally he hears the buzz of a plane. He thinks I'm rescued. It turns out the plane's an enemy plane. Starts shooting at him. Kind of tough story. It gets worse. He becomes a prisoner of war. And there's a man named the bird there at that prisoner of war camp and that man mistreats him brutally demeans him as a person, tells him he's worthless. Eventually, after everybody thinks he's dead, he is rescued and he comes back home a hero, but he can't get over the anger that he feels about that whole experience. Descends into alcoholism. Becomes more and more bitter until 1949 when in Los Angeles he goes to a crusade, a Billy Graham crusade, and he hears the gospel and he believes And he becomes a new creation. Some years later, he goes back to that prisoner of war camp. And he meets some of the guards who guarded him there. And he asks, where is the bird? And they say, he's no longer here. He took his own life. And out of that pain, he said he felt an amazing compassion that he never thought he would feel. He actually loved the man who had mistreated him. How did that happen? Well, for him... When the love of God transformed his life, he was able to love other people and the war was over. So I I just wonder what war that started in 2010 or 1949 for you or whenever are you carrying over into 2011? And do you really believe that God loves you? Because if we can get this part right this year, if we can believe that he loves us and love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we can follow the example of Jesus, we can grow in grace. We can grow spiritually and physically and intellectually and relationally. We can grow, but you say, you know what? How are we ever going to measure up to the example of Jesus Christ? Well, the good news is Jesus is not just our example. 
He's our Savior. And He has the power to forgive us for all the mistakes and failures of our past and to give us a new beginning. He makes all things new. Not just the year, but you and me. If we will grow in His grace and believe that we can love ourselves for His sake because of what He's done for us in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your presence, for your power in our lives. Lester said it well a few weeks ago, Lord, we can't live without you. We can live without food and water. We can live even without air for a little while, Lord, but we cannot live for a second without you and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So help us, I pray today, Lord, to receive your grace, to grow in your grace in every way, in a balanced way so that we look back at the end of this year and say that was grace. That was God's grace active in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.